Here's what we're going to do this semester. We always say that we hope that RUF is a safe place for the convinced and the unconvinced to examine the truth claims of Christianity and Scripture. And so we walk through books of the Bible together. I think this semester we're going to put that claim to the real test. Because we're going to walk through the book of Leviticus. Like that book. The third book that has commands about scabs and bleeding problems and mold in someone's house. And dare to consider, does it actually hold forth the truth of Christianity? Here's what I want you to consider. Everyone is talking about Hugh Jackman's recent movie, The Greatest Showman. Margaret Walker's bragging she's seen it five times. And here's the deal. One of the scenes that really caught my attention, this is not going to spoil anything, but uh, P.T. Barnum starts the circus. Sorry if that's a spoiler. Uh, but everybody's loving it. But there is this kind of sour theater critic who poorly reviews his circus. And even though everybody else likes it, he doesn't. And he comes to Hugh Jackman, P.T. Barnum, and he says this. He basically says, look, everybody's liking this, but it's fake. It's lowbrow, shallow entertainment. And Barnum looks at him and says this. Well, I don't think those smiles are fake. And it doesn't matter where they come from, the joy is real. And that quote, I think, taps into something that the whole movie is trying to suggest. That we are all longing for something to give us joy. And what Barnum did is put something on the display, put something in their visual sight that they could see and experience that brought joy. Here's my question. What if Leviticus is tapping into that same desire? That Leviticus actually puts things in front of you, a visual aid, if you will, that can be seen and touched and smelled so that your smile and joy is real. You might not have ever thought about Leviticus like that. Let me, uh, let me pray for us. Father, um, we always need your help. Man, when it comes to something like Leviticus, we very much uh, feel our confusion. Uh, uh, we'll feel our, our sin. Uh, and so, Lord, I, I pray that for those who have come tonight, you would make good on your promise and you would be with us. And would you speak to us through your word uh, so that we might see the beauty of Jesus. In your son's name I pray. Amen. All right, here is Leviticus, chapter 1, verse 1 through 9. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then he shall fillet the burnt offering and cut it into pieces, and the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons... The priest shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat and the wood that is on the fire on the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God stands forever. Okay, as we intro into Leviticus, I just want us to see two things. The Leviticus is God's word. And the Leviticus is all about God drawing near. All right? First, 
Leviticus is God's word. Look at verse 1. Leviticus opens with the Lord calling Moses and speaking directly to him from a tent. And here's what you'll find in Leviticus. That it is filled with direct speeches from God. Really, I think that's right. Leviticus, more than any book of the Bible, has the direct speech of God recorded for you in Scripture. And I don't say that to try to kind of create some dichotomy of some book is more important than the other, or some book is more God's work. All the books of the Bible are breathed out by God. All of them are His Word. But I'm emphasizing what Christians for thousands of years have said about Leviticus, that it's God's Word, which means it comes to us with God's authority, God's perfection, and God's wisdom. Now, honestly, what do you think about that? Because what, what I think is most of you in this room, you fall in one of two camps when you hear that Leviticus is God's authoritative and inerrant word. I think if you're a Christian in this room, Leviticus is the big boogeyman. It like stops your, your Bible reading plan, uh, you know, that you try to make it through for the year. And it's the book that we're just kind of scared of. Because we don't know what to do with it. I had a student last semester who remained nameless. But I was in a fraternity house talking to some guys about thinking about maybe studying Leviticus this semester. And he goes, he goes, oh, oh, don't do that. I loved it. Like it just came out of him. But why would you do that? And this is how the majority of, of us Christians think about Leviticus. That we affirm it's God's word, but what do I do with it? Like all these blood sacrifices, rules about mold and eating shellfish and bodily discharges. Not only do, not, not, do we not know what to do with it, I think we're embarrassed by it. Because Leviticus, this is what one of my friends actually, Les Newsom, said. That Leviticus, it's like, it's like your drunk uncle that shows up at the wedding. You know what I mean? Like he's there, he's part of the family, we tolerate him, but he's kind of embarrassing. And we wish he would just kind of go away. And that's how we treat Leviticus. If, if somebody asks you about Leviticus, you just kind of shrug your shoulders like, yeah, have you ever read Romans? You know, <laughs> because we don't know what to do. But the other camp is if you're skeptical of Christianity, and we hope you're here tonight, or you're trying to figure it out, or you're hardened towards Christianity, Leviticus might be the very book that you point at as the very reason for your skepticism. Because you read it and you say, what kind of religion is that? What what kind of God do you claim to serve that has these blood sacrifices of animals? People are struck down dead because they enter this tent in the wrong way. Or a woman is unclean after her cycle. See, this is the kind of stuff we're going to talk about. What kind of uncultured, unsophisticated, misogynistic book is this? Right? that's, That's what you can begin to think. And I'm not making light of that critique. I'm asking you to come and investigate. Because you might have even discovered that Leviticus is, it is the whipping boy for people to, to discredit Christianity. Right? Because things will be said like, well, you Christians point to Leviticus as God's word and, and, and you describe how Leviticus upholds this sexual ethic that I should fall, that, you know, that I should follow. Okay. But you know what else? Leviticus says you shouldn't eat pork. And I saw you at Handy Andy today eating barbecue. So which is it? And you're like, ah. And it, 
it lays this, grand, this accusation of inconsistency. And so all that to say, to some extent, probably all of us in this room either don't know what to do with it, are embarrassed or offended by it. But the idea of Leviticus being God's inerrant word, it makes us at the least uncomfortable. And yet, Leviticus begins by asserting and assuming that this whole book is the very word of God and for thousands of years, Christians have not hidden this book. They've actually received it and found it beautiful. Did you know it is a verse from Leviticus that is inscripted on the Liberty Bell? There's a verse from Leviticus, proclaim the liberty throughout all the land to all the inhabitants that ended up being the rallying cry for the abolitionists to to defeat the evils of slavery in America. Did you know that the most quoted verse that comes from Jesus' mouth is Leviticus? Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus paid attention to, to Leviticus. Jesus loved Leviticus. Actually, so much of the New Testament assumes you might not can make sense of who Jesus is and what he came to do without it. And so here's my pitch for the first week. What if we walk through Leviticus this semester in some of those incredibly confusing chapters, but some of the confusion clears? And what if some of the stumbling blocks kind of get removed? And you actually begin to consider Christianity seriously, a little bit. And what if for others of you, beginning to understand Leviticus deepens your confidence in the Bible and makes you realize more and more that God's Word, it really is trustworthy. It really is applicable to my life. And even Leviticus brings me to know and enjoy and to trust the beauty of Jesus. Would that be worth it? All right, one, one person said this. It's written at the bottom of your, uh, of your handout. Leviticus really is good news for sinners who seek pardon, women who are vulnerable, and man, that is applicable. For the poor who, who yearn for freedom, for the marginalized who seek dignity, for animals that demand protection, and for creation that stands in need of care. That's what Leviticus is about. So first, we're studying it because it's God's Word. But second of all, Leviticus is about God drawing near. This is what verse 1 through 9 is about. Did you notice how verse 1 tells you that the Lord is speaking from a tent of meeting? What does that mean? This is a big contextual clue to help you understand what's going on in Leviticus. The book of Leviticus follows Exodus. And Exodus is about how the Lord delivers His people, Israel, the Jewish people, After 400 years of slavery under the Egyptian empire, he delivers them and he sets them free. And almost immediately after he does that, he tells them, I want to dwell with you. I want to be near you. And so he tells them to set up a tent. And actually, if you read Exodus, almost this this huge portion of Exodus is giving all these almost mind-numbing, detailed instructions about how to set up this tent or this tabernacle. Why? Because God is going to show up in a visible way and be with his people. And Exodus ends, you can, you can flip back one page in your Bible, and the glory of God shows up, whatever that means, in a cloud and fills the tent. And his presence is here with his people. And Leviticus is saying, here's the rules. Here's what you've got to know if you're going to live in the presence of this God. Because he wants to be close to you. He wants to be intimate with you. 
But that means there's some things that you've got to understand. And maybe you say that, like that's ridiculous. It's archaic to talk about maybe rules that you have to understand or rituals that you need to be aware of about a relationship. But I think if you consider, even reflect for just a second, I think you realize it's not that crazy. We all do it. How often is the confusion in, our, in your relationship with the opposite sex is because you don't know what we are? And I need to have some sort of knowing what we are so that I can know the proper rituals that come around that. If we're just texting, what does that mean? Right? Even more so. What about your Greek organization that some of you are a part of? Have you noticed that there are patterns and rituals that you have to walk through? Why? Because it's communicating to you. This is what you need to know to be a part of this and to experience what it means to be a fill-in-the-blank. It's everywhere. We have all kinds of things that are communicating what is this relationship and how do I function in it. And Leviticus is saying this. If the Lord of this universe is the Holy One, the loving one, the pure one, if He's going to be near us, if He's going to be in relationship with us, then there's going to be realities that you and I have to be confronted with. And for that reason, here we go. Leviticus begins with detailed instructions about sacrifices and offerings. Right? This is what we read. This passage gives very specific instructions about what kind of animal to bring, what to do with the blood, what to wash, whether it's bull, sheep, or bird, how to be arranged on the altar and burned. And look, in the coming weeks, we're going to go into some details on, on what those means, if you'll, if you'll hang with me. Tonight, I just want to pull back and ask this. If we're being confronted with God coming near, why is the first thing that Leviticus wants us to know is that sacrifice has to happen. The first seven chapters are about sacrifices. Why, if God wants us close, if He wants a loving relationship with us, why is there all this dying and blood being spilt? Here's my suggestion. Leviticus is confronting us with something that we don't want to be true. That the holy and pure and good God is going to draw near me, who is impure, who is sinful, who is dirty, then there are quite a few obstacles that have to be overcome. And you know what the main obstacle is? Myself. My sin. And your, our lack of purity. If he's the pure one. And what that means, according to the Bible, is that our sin deserves death. Death. It's what Paul made very clear later on in the decision. He says the wages of sin is death. Okay. And so what if one of the most dangerous positions to be in is to be unaware of the fact that I have sinned and it leads to death? What if you were unaware of that fact? Have you ever read about this rare condition? Uh, it's a medical condition. Uh, I think it's called CIP. It's a disorder. That it means a person literally cannot feel pain. So I'm like, all right, at first that sounds awesome, but it's actually terrible. It's awful. Because what, what ends up happening if you have this disorder is your, your hand can be touching a stove. 
And flesh is burning and you don't even know it. And you're unaware that that you are touching something. You're in the presence of something that is hurting you. And you don't even know it. Well, what if the thing that is killing us actually is our sin and rebellion, but we don't even know it? We don't even know how serious it is. Then wouldn't one of the most loving things God could do would be to put things in front of the Israelites and in front of us that would help them taste and see and experience that reality. And so what happens? If God's going to draw near, sin has to be addressed. It has to be dealt with. And there's a lot of sin in me. How do you keep it before me that I don't forget this? Well, what if when you entered the tabernacle, the place that God dwelt, the first thing that you saw was an altar, a place of death. And then you had to take a lamb yourself, yourself, and slit its throat so that blood splatters on you. And you you smell death. And you hear the noise of death. Don't you think at that point a little bit, sin wouldn't be theoretical and abstract? You would think, man, this really tastes like death. The penalty of sin is death. And Leviticus is screaming out, sin is not abstract. It's really hurting us. It's really damaging people. It's actually an offense to the God of this universe. Because it has the stench of death. And the worst thing, the worst thing for us would be to walk around and think that our self-absorption, our self-righteousness that we carry around, are the... Wink, wink, you know, no big deal. This is my four years of college. That stuff is no big deal. When in reality, it's killing us. And it's destroying us. And so Leviticus brings what is theoretical to some of us into the concrete. So that you come face to face with this. If I'm going to be in an intimate relationship with God, it is not going to be because of my merit. Or my goodness. Because when I walk into the presence of God, something has to die. That's who I am. And look, if that's where we ended, incredibly depressing, none of you would probably come back next week. But that's not where it ends. Because what if God drawing near meant that you also, not in an abstract way, but in a concrete way that you can know, saw that God was more gracious and more loving and more serious about saving you and being with you than you ever thought. If that's what God wanted to communicate to you, how would you keep that truth before people? Well, as you enter this tent where God dwells, you become aware of the fact that, yes, my sin deserves death, it deserves separation from God, But here's the amazing thing. You don't die. Instead, a spotless, without blemish, lamb dies in your place as you watch it be consumed as a burnt offering, which is what this one is. And as you watch the lamb burn on the altar, you smell it in your nostrils. You taste and you experience this truth. 
God would so much rather forgive me and save me than destroy me. God loves to save and forgive. He's so much more more willing to do that than to destroy me. That he's willing to let this die in my place. So that salvation is not theoretical. It's tangible. It's real. Because you begin to taste it. That God's grace has made a way for me to be right with him. And I don't deserve it. So I'll bring it to a close like this. Um, I listen to This, this, is, uh, uh, this American Life, um, mainly to stay relevant uh, with college students. And uh, there was this one episode about Daniel. Uh, I thought that was going to be funnier than it went. Um, <laughs> and Daniel was, he was seven. And had, he had always, up until the age of seven, he had always slept in an orphanage at Romania. And had never slept lying down. Because he shared his bed with another orphan. He never experienced a hug. He never knew what a dad and mom was. There was always a rotating number of adults that would just care for him very briefly. The only time he was ever let out of his crib was to go to a bathroom and to eat. He'd never had a birthday party. He'd never had a kiss. Until two people, Heidi and Rick Solomon from Ohio, came along and adopted him when he was seven years old. Here's what happens. At first, everything goes well, and then it went bad. He broke tons of things in the house. He put over a thousand holes in their walls because of his violent temper. It got worse and worse. He was was literally uncontrollable. As they kept going to see counselors and doctors, what they diagnosed him with was orphan attachment disorder. That basically said, because of the environment he had lived in, what had been done to him, he would never form a connecting relationship with anyone. Because he had no empathy. He had no conscience. And experts said, it's only going to get worse. The pain in your life is only going to get worse. You should probably medicate him, lock him up, and, and send him over to protective custody for his good and your good. But both the parents refused. And this is, this is what the whole interview is about. Because they said, how could I? And they said, how can you love somebody so hostile? And mom said, how, how could I stop loving him? And so finally, Heidi found some, some doctor that said, okay, this might work. Your only hope of him being healed is this. You have to attach a rope from your waist to his waist so that he can never be more than three feet from you. And every, every time he does something violent, every time that he hurts you, every time he says something he's not supposed to, here's what you do. You have to pull him close to you, and you have to hug him, and you have to kiss him, and you have to tell him that you love him. And so month, for months, literally, he never went more than three feet from her. And every time, hitting, kicking, screaming, pull you in, touch you, love you. Fast forward about mm, 10 years. He's standing at a banquet at his high school graduation where he received an award for his best student. And he told his parents that night, it's not his first time, but publicly that he loved them. Something they said would never happen. What happened? The unstoppable love of Rick and Heidi that was made tangible in touch and being near and kisses that changed him. Look, here's my appeal. So many of us 
words like grace and mercy and forgiveness and his patience towards us, it just seems like words that are cognitive. And here's what Leviticus is saying. I know. I know you feel that way. What you need is something concrete and tangible. Like Daniel, you need to know someone that will overcome every obstacle in your life. Every obstacle you put up so that he can draw near and be with you. And bring those words of grace and mercy to bear in a way that you experience it as reality. Because Leviticus wants you to long for something. Not the days of Leviticus. Never. We don't want to go back there. This is better. Leviticus wants you to long for something or someone better. The hope of this semester is that you get drawn, you ready? To the God made visible. The God made tangible. Jesus. Who will come onto the scene... 2,000 years ago, and John the Baptist will look at Jesus and will say, Behold, the Lamb of God, did you hear? That takes away the sin of the world. Did you hear it? There stands the unblemished one. The one who will concretely and tangibly make a way for you and I to live in his loving, intimate presence at great cost to himself so he can be with us. Leviticus, every bit of it, is about Jesus and how God will overcome whatever obstacle and every obstacle that you put up so that he can be near his people. Are you curious enough to show up? That's my question. What if this semester, through Leviticus, words like grace, forgiveness, and mercy, and love no longer were just cognitive ideas, but they were realities that confronted you in the person of Jesus, and then experienced in the lives of other people, so that it brought you a real joy, a real smile, and it changed you. I don't know, maybe that seems far-fetched in Leviticus, but I would ask you to keep showing up and give it a try. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for, for people coming. There are just a thousand good things uh, that students can do with their time on a Wednesday night. And I thank you uh, that they came. Lord, would you, um, and would you stroke our curiosity tonight? Would you uh, help us to believe that you are a God who really wants to be near us? Some of us, that is painfully hard to believe because we know what our life looked like this week. And we don't think anybody wants to be with us. So would you pierce through in the pages of Leviticus and show us that Jesus is good and he's real. And he can heal us. In your son's name I pray. Amen.